I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Let's set the scene. Someone commits a crime, and the judge or one of the lawyers gets the feeling that the person is not competent, which means that they can't help their attorney in the preparation or the management of their case. So they call you in as a psychologist to tell the court, is the person competent or not? Dr. Michael Brannon is a forensic psychologist, has been in Broward County for a long time, has done a lot of work over the years. How would you go about answering the judge's or the lawyer's questions? Well, the first thing you'd want to know is what is it that happened that made them question the person's competency? What we used to call competency to stand trial that's more often referred to now as competency to proceed. So what has interfered in some way or what do they believe has interfered? For instance, has the person seem unable to understand the questions that are posed to them? Or are they acting in some kind of bizarre or unusual way? Or are they just disinterested, seemingly unmotivated or disinterested in assisting in their own defense? So what specifically has happened that results in them picking up the phone and calling us is always, in my opinion, the first step. Because if you miss the first step, oftentimes you do an interview that's unrelated to their referral question. So there's a lot of basic history that needs to be done, and that seems rather obvious. Sure, especially with the referral question in terms of how did this person get in front of me? Okay. Now, one of the differences between psychiatrists and psychologists is that you guys are trained and use testing instruments to do this. A lot of people wonder, how do you choose an instrument? There are so many. I was looking at a catalog, and there are so many. How does someone go about choosing one over another? Are there special tests? Are there better tests? How do you go about doing this? There are. There are a number of tests, and not only are there a number of tests, but those tests are revised sometimes within very rapid periods of time, like IQ tests are changed and We just had another major revision after only a couple of years in one of our IQ tests, the major IQ tests, the Wechsler scales. So what test we use really depends upon the referral question. Um, And there may be multiple tests. For instance, if they're questioning whether a person is smart enough to understand, whether their IQ is high enough to understand what goes on in a courtroom, we might choose an IQ test like the Wechsler Adult Intelligence Scales. If they're more concerned with personality issues, assuming the person can read at an appropriate level, which would be sixth grade, you might want to use a personality measure like the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the second edition now. If there are other more specific questions like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, can the person stay, uh, be attentive long enough or sit still in their chair long enough or anticipate consequences of what certain actions might be on their part, then we might use other things not only with the person we're interviewing but also teachers and family members like the Connor scales. So it really depends on what the reason why they're in with us. And sometimes we don't even use testing because it might be an issue of at this particular moment in time, this person appeared impaired, and that impairment may have been substance-induced. The diagnosis really plays, shall we say, a leading role in which test you use to go after a sense of competency. Am I understanding that correctly? Well, maybe not quite that specific yet. I mean, what, what you're really looking at is why is it an intellectual level? Um, is it a, a psychological issue, meaning from a personality standpoint? Or they just don't know, so that you have to go in with all of your tests and sort of select based upon your clinical interviews. Sometimes you're not quite sure, and, all, and this depends sometimes on the quality of your referral source, their experience, and how much they might know about what they're looking for, how finely tuned they are as an attorney. So sometimes you're going in with all of your tests. And then another thing that, that would help determine those things is what area you're, you're in. If you're in an area that expects competency evaluations to be relatively quick, sometimes an hour, 
competency evaluation that's compensated at a rate that would really um, result in an hour competency eval, you might just get an interview, especially if the person is answering all of the questions and is very specific and detailed in their answers. You might not see any testing at all. Whereas if you compare that to a federal level where they have three days to do a competency evaluation, the psychologist there and the students are doing every test imaginable and might do 15 different tests assessing every area of functioning. It seems um, a bit unfair. Well, those in the area of doing just an hour evaluation and reporting back to the court, certainly that seems unfair as comparing apples and oranges. But the other thing I would mention to you, though, is that one of the most important elements in doing any kind of testing in a forensic setting um, would be to assess for malingering. Very good tests, counting over 75 different tests specifically for malingering. Well, I want to get to that in just a minute because it always intrigues people. They, They basically ask you, how do you know they're not lying? But let's go back one step. Some of it has to do with immaturity. Sometimes if you're seeing someone who's 15 years old or 18 years old, they actually may have the maturity of a 9- or a 10-year-old. How, how do you deal with that? Well, especially if they have certain conditions like attention deficit disorder or if they have intellectual deficits, like they may be functioning in a mentally retarded range. Certainly you might see you know, issues of immaturity. And, and interestingly, it's only recently through the work of psychologists like Dr. Thomas Grisso at the University of Massachusetts that we began to think about these concepts of immaturity. Up until then, we really started to look at or really looked at juveniles as little adults. So we didn't consider there's a separate concept in terms of developmental immaturity. We really don't have a test to measure that. So a lot of that's done with interview. A lot of that's done with interview, not only with the person you're speaking with, but their parents, their teachers, other family members, maybe even friends, and maybe an analysis of their behavior and how how much sense that behavior made considering the demands of the situation. So it becomes interesting because if you get to use your your separation between the one-hour evaluation and the three-day evaluation. With the three-day evaluation, you get the real harmonics of a person, but in the one hour, you might miss it only because of the time limitations. Well, you would, you would assume the error rate would be higher based upon a number of factors. A would be the amount of time and resources you have available to you. Another would be the time constraints. Like, for instance, in the area where, where I reside, Broward County, um, there's a five-day turnaround for most competency evaluations, which is hardly enough time to secure hospital records or the appropriate family members or arresting police officers. It's hardly enough time to get that information. So you're limited by resources, by time, by the expectations that people have in terms of the length of time of that evaluation. You're also limited, too, by the experience of the examiner. Absolutely. So, so can an experienced examiner within the course of an hour, 45 minutes, come up most of the time with a determination that's consistent with most other examiners on competency? My answer would be yes. But would the error rate be higher for those as opposed to those that go over three days? Absolutely. What becomes frightening to hear you talk about this is that in very serious criminal cases, you want the best information possible in front of the court. And it sounds as if there are issues other than the skills of the examiner that are limiting perhaps the quality or the depth of the information that is brought to the court. That's correct, especially when you take it out of the pristine environment that we operate in as clinicians, either psychiatrists or psychologists. We have the best of all possible worlds model. 
really what you begin to look at then is the jockeying interest in the adversarial process of getting their own experts in. And sometimes one side or the other may be more invested in getting a less experienced expert for hopefully for getting a better opinion. So we have to look at and consider that part of what goes on is some gamesmanship. They're not only interested in the outcome or the answer. They're very interested in a position that will support their position of advocacy in the case. Which goes straight to the very commonly mentioned skepticism that people have when there are especially high-profile cases because they are just covered. Lesser profile or lesser higher profile cases are equally important, but they don't get the media attention. Correct. But so here you go and you've been hired and you come up and you say a person has a certain cluster of symptoms and you believe they're competent or not competent. And another psychiatrist or another psychologist comes along and says the opposite. And, and people are watching this and saying, how can it be so different? That's a hard question for people to understand. Sometimes it truly is the the old story of the feeling the different sides of the elephant. You know, depending on which side you're standing on, which information you've been given, if you're feeling the trunk or the tail or if you're feeling the leg, it looks like a different organism. Unless you have all of the pieces of the elephant, you truly don't appreciate that it's the elephant sometimes. And that's why a lot of these evaluations turn out not to be necessarily diagnostic evaluations. You see a lot of tentative diagnoses with more of a focus on what we call functional capacities. What can this person do? What do they know as opposed to who are they diagnostically? Hmm. Okay. So you've gone, met the person, got as much data as you can. You brought up the topic of malingering, of lying. That's hard. It's hard for anybody to tell if someone else is lying. How do you measure this? How do you get some sort of reasonably solid position or opinion on if someone's lying? Well, we've had contributions by both the psychiatric community and psychological community in getting better at doing that. The frustrating thing always, of course, is you never know if anyone's lying unless they tell you they're lying. And then, of course, we have the conundrum of they could be lying about lying. Exactly. But but certainly we are getting better at measuring those things. We're not lie detectors. We're not infallible. But we do have better techniques than ever before. A psychiatrist named Dr. Philip Resnick helped us and assisted us with great interview techniques. He does workshops all around the country and has helped with some wonderful techniques of asking questions where people fall outside certain ranges that you would expect, even if they had mental illness or if they were functioning in a range of mental retardation. And as psychologists, we have wonderful tests that have been developed by a myriad of authors that really look at the construct of malingering specifically. And those have to do with things like forced choice answers, like does a person always choose the wrong answer? Those things have to do with um, outrageous answers. Do they choose the most outrageous answer? Those things have to do with a combination of symptoms. Does a person have an unlikely combination of symptoms that we know is inconsistent with the known topography of the most genuine mental disorders? Usually when people are malingering, they're trying to look worse than the worst person or more psychiatrically disturbed than the most psychotic person. So that's what most of those tests are based upon. And there's tests, of course, to measure for both intellectual faking or trying to appear less um, intelligent than you are or psychotic type of testing, trying to appear more mentally ill, hearing more voices, seeing more visions than even the most psychotic of individuals. And so the common phrase that people will see if they go to court or they listen to a court, they'll hear things like, to a reasonable degree of medical certainty or scientific certainty, because it's not 100%, you don't have it. So it's the best offering that you can offer. 
Right. And I'd say that's consistent with all science. I mean, science isn't meant whether it's the science of psychiatry or psychology um, or, or chemistry. I mean, there's no exact, there's no perfect. We're always changing. That's why we change theories. We gather more information. We test out our hypotheses. Hopefully, we're, we're humble enough to know that there is no 100%. So we always are striving to be the best we are or we can be based upon the tools that are at our hand at that point in time. One of the things that's always interesting is that the terms competency and insanity are not mental health terms. They belong to the legal profession, and we use them because we have to. Correct. But uh, they're really we don't go to school to study those terms. So let's go to the notion of insanity. So you've gone, you see somebody is competent or not competent, and now the judge says, tell me about their sanity at the time of the event. What does that involve? Well, really, you're talking about two different time frames. You're with a competency to proceed evaluation. You're doing a here and now evaluation. It's as the person sits in front of you, what are their abilities and what are their lack or deficits of abilities? So competency is a here and now evaluation. Sanity is a retrospective and more difficult evaluation requiring more time, more documentation, more interviews. And really what you're looking at then is the person's ability to appreciate the wrongfulness and the nature and consequences, possible consequences of their actions at any point in time. And this particular sanity evaluation would be at the time of some offense they've committed. So with a sanity evaluation, you're really backing up time and you're trying to get a picture of that person's mental health functioning at the time an event occurred. And sometimes you're quite removed from that event. Sometimes you're years removed from that event and trying to recreate the history with that person and through the supporting documentation and people who were there at the time of what actually occurred based on those sets of data. There is an old basis called the McNaughton Rule. Could you explain the McNaughton Rule a little bit? Sure. It, um, it, it really originated in England. Many, many states, including Florida, use McNaughton in various modified forms. In Florida, it goes like this. There's two prongs, and then there's two sections of the second prong. The first prong is the presence of a major mental disease, defect, or infirmity. Um, and if that prong is met, then the second prong is as a result of that major mental disease, defect, or infirmity, the person is not able to appreciate the nature and consequences or possible consequences of their actions and or the wrongfulness of their actions. It's a cognitive test, a test of the person's intellectual or thinking abilities. Is that disturbed in some way so that they couldn't do the criteria that I just mentioned? Florida is considered one of the more difficult states for someone to be found insane in because it's a cognitive time. One of the things that always intrigues me is that the same crime, the same entire setup in Florida or another state could actually end up having two different definitions. Very much so. That boggles a lot of people's minds when they think about shouldn't the law be relatively consistent, more so than not across state boundaries. Well, the lay public has always been concerned when they read the uh, hear the news or read it in the newspaper about uh, criminals faking insanity and getting off for horrible crimes. And yet the statistics are that a very, very, very small number of people, less than one, less than 10 percent of 1 percent, actually are, are put back into the streets once the insanity plea has been offered. So it's not successful very often. And when it is, usually the person is in a psychiatric setting or hospital longer than they would have served in jail for non-homicide cases. And also it's important to indicate that a lot of time, great majority of time, if someone is found not guilty by reasons of insanity, they don't go home. Another doctor comes along and says, no, 
he was perfectly sane at the time. The, the people watching television watch this. They go, the psychologists, they just can't get their act together. Is it the same thing as you said before, different sides of the elephant? Well, it could be. Sometimes it's just because people don't have the same information, and that usually comes out in a good good trial and cross-examination, what was not relied upon or what was not sought that one examiner had and that the other did not. Sometimes they're just reasonable experts can, can disagree. Sometimes they're very close calls, and they're looking at the same information, just having a different opinion at the end of the day. And, and sometimes it has to do with some people look at the criteria for insanity and believe that some people fit that criteria. They have a, a more liberal standard, if you will. Or a more conservative standard. Or, right, or a more conservative standard of that. So, they're, again, they're looking at the same data, but just not feeling the person meets the, the legal criteria. It requires us as psychologists to interpret the legal criteria, which is sometimes a, a difficult thing for us to do without that requisite training. Oh, it is indeed. It is very hard sometimes. And as you as you so properly said, a lot of it has to do with the databases that people have and how much time they have to really look at the background, talk to family and so on. Things can change enormously Correct. When, you, when you find a certain piece of data. Correct. And, and I would also say that what, what happens is that people only see what goes to trial on a great number of insanity cases. And you would say this with competency as well. The majority of them, the experts agree. Those things are usually stipulated to, and we never see those in trial. The ones you see in trial are either because they're very high profile or because those are the exceptions to the rule. But very few insanity cases go to trial. It's the, the defense is not used very often at all. And when it is used, it more likely than not will not work, overwhelmingly will not work. And then when it does work, the person usually, as we said, winds up going for long periods of time for psychiatric stabilization. A very interesting part of our society, still a very complicated one because we don't have the tools that we would like, but we're a lot better than we were not we're too many better. years ago. We're much better than we were. Michael Brannon is a clinical psychologist. His words come from a lot of personal experience. He was in court today, actually. And so we thank you for coming and hope that in the future we can pick your brain on some interesting cases as they come along. Thank you, Dr. Strauss. Thanks for having me.